As I said before, my name is Len Vanderzee, and uh, I'm a retired CRC minister. Uh, not quite out to pasture yet. I uh, was ordained uh, 52 years ago this past year, and um, I'm glad to be here today in this uh, beautiful building where you worship. First time in this building, I think, even though I live only a few blocks away, up uh, sort of behind Myers over there. See you in the store one of these days. <laughs> Scripture today is from Matthew chapter 15. Verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Jesus did not answer a word. So the disciples came to him and urged him, send her away, for she keeps crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. What a strange story, huh? Boundaries. We all have boundaries. In fact, we all need boundaries. There's professional boundaries, there's personal boundaries, marital boundaries, psychological boundaries. There's the fence in your backyard, that's a boundary. We try to establish our boundaries between, say, our work and our home, between our public life and our private life. And boundaries are often necessary in our lives. I mean, we can't take in the whole world. We can't deal with everyone. We can't deal with everything all at the same time. The trouble with boundaries is that often as soon as we put them up, Someone challenges our boundaries, and we have to reevaluate them, redraw them. I have some boundary struggles sometimes. Just for example, when am I a pastor and when am I a friend? Or when does a personal experience become sermon fodder? My children make sure I keep that boundary. Among other things, this story is about boundaries. It straddles all sorts of boundaries between the old and the new, between a man and a woman, between a Jew and a Gentile, between the past and the future. Just before this passage, Jesus was wrangling with the Pharisees about the usual things about whether to wash your hands or not, or uh, what's clean and what's unclean, and then Jesus heads to the boundary, to Tyre and Sidon. Now, 
That's a bit of scary geography for most Jews. This was the territory of Israel's perennial enemies. This was the territory where spiritually unclean people lived, people you were supposed to avoid. And the woman in this story is called a Canaanite. This is the only time that that word Canaanite is used in the entire New Testament. And it's a loaded term. It's loaded with contempt. Canaanites were fertility god image-worshipping pagans. So what's Jesus doing here? Evidently, he's not on a mission trip from First Church of Nazareth. Matthew t just tells us that Jesus went away. He went away. Mark's gospel adds something. It says that when he got to Tyre and Sidon, he entered a house and didn't want anyone to know where he was. Well, it seems like Jesus had to get away, that he had to escape the pressures of the scribes and the Pharisees, uh, uh, the constant demands upon his time. He needed to sort things out. He needed to be alone. We've all been there, right? And what better place than the far boundaries of Tyre and Sidon? No one was likely to bother him there. All he had to do was lay low, and that's what he tried to do. But that's not what happened. Here comes this woman shouting for Jesus' attention. The Greek word even means shrieking. With a mother's fierce love, she is willing to cross any boundary, religion, ethnicity, even propriety, to get Jesus' attention. She just doesn't care about boundaries. Still, somehow this pagan woman has the theological sense to address Jesus with words that Jews only know about. Lord, she says to him, son of David, she calls him. Where did she get that? Not only that, but she pits the son of David against the demons of hell. My daughter is tormented by a demon. Have mercy. In Greek, her cry reminds us of the familiar prayer that's been in the church throughout the centuries. Kyrie eleison. Those are the words. Lord, have mercy. And what does Jesus do? He did not say a word. Did he stare ahead? Did he walk away? He did not say a word. What do we say? Loving Jesus, polite, sensitive Jesus, did not answer her at all. This is truly a deafening silence. How can our merciful Lord ignore the cries of the woman in need and pain? How can he ignore a child who was possessed by demons? It's surprising. It's no more than that. It's disturbing. But when you think about it, it shouldn't surprise us in a way. Most of us have experienced it. We desperately pray. We implore God. We kneel before God like this woman did, realizing our only hope is in God's mercy. And all we seem to hear is the silence of empty space, a mute, uncaring universe. As many of us know from experience,
prayer, even desperate prayer, doesn't always find an answer immediately. We can learn something from this woman whose only credentials are love and courage and faith. Jesus does not say, no, your request is impossible. There was just silence. And somehow this woman instinctively knows that the silence was not just a no. There was somehow an open silence, a a silence that was filled with grace's potential. And she takes Jesus' silence not as a rejection, but as an opportunity. The disciples, of course, don't see it that way. In their typically self-centered and irritable way, they they tell Jesus, that's what the text says, to send her away. They don't address him as Lord. They just grumble. Get rid of her. She's bugging us. Actually, I understand them too. Because I know the feelings when I've been pestered by persistent, downright obnoxious beggars in Durban or Cape Town or New York. You know it too. Persistent children who don't understand the need for their parents to be alone sometimes. Just go away. Don't bother me. But then Jesus finally speaks. And it's clear, it's not clear exactly who he's talking to. The woman, the disciples. Perhaps he's just talking out loud to himself. This is what he says. He says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Jesus seems to be struggling with how to accomplish his ministry. In Matthew 10, five chapters before this, he's sending his disciples on a mission trip, and he instructs them, go nowhere among the Gentiles, enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Same words. Same words. It's not that Jesus didn't somehow anticipate there would be a mission to the Gentiles sometime in the future. It's right there in the Old Testament. Israel was to be a light to the nations. It's right there in the Gospel of Matthew. The pagan magi come to worship the child Christ. Jesus heals a a son of a Roman centurion. It's not that we can't. It's a matter of timing. Jesus understands the principle of the priority of the Jews in the divine economy of salvation. The Jews come first. Jesus can only be a savior of all the people by first remaining faithful to God's chosen people, even if they reject him. He says to the Samaritan woman in John 4, salvation comes from the Jews. The time of the Gentiles will come. After his resurrection, Jesus commands the disciples, go and make disciples of all the nations. That's God's timetable. So there's a divine principle at stake here. There's a strategic timetable. I was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel first. Frankly, I don't think that this woman cared a bit about Jesus, about Jesus' theological struggles or about his strategic decisions. In her desperation, in her need, she wanted one thing. She wanted her daughter healed, and Jesus still had not said no. So desperately, shamelessly, tearfully, 
she kneels down in front of Jesus. She says, Lord, just help me. Please help me. Can you ignore me? Can you walk around me? Jesus wants her to understand the problem. What's at stake here? She's a Gentile after all. Maybe she needs a simple illustration about what this is about. And for the first time, it's clear that he's speaking directly to her. And what does he say? He says, you know, it's not fair to take the children's food and give it to the dogs. That's blunt. That's crude. Maybe it's cruel. But it's honest. Calling Gentiles dogs, among other even worse things, was common among the Jews of Jesus' day. What seems like a mere put-down is also a matter of logic, cold logic, perhaps. Children come before dogs, right? We all know that. You don't give children's food to dogs. Jesus is making his dilemma Jesus is, is, is showing his dilemma to this theologically untrained Gentile. Dogs don't get children's food. Do you understand? In stories, in jokes, there's always the law of three, right? The priest, the minister, and the rabbi. Or in Jesus' own words, the stories, there are three servants who get the master's money. Or there are three people who come across the victim in the story of the Good Samaritan. And we instinctively know that the climax, the point, will come the third time around. Well, by the law of three, this woman has already struck out. Strike one, silence. Strike two, Jews first. Strike three, a fastball in the inside corner. Dogs don't get children's food. So that should be the end of it but it's not. She's still standing at the plate, and no one's barked, you're out. And so she takes one more swing, and she sends the ball out of the park. The secret is in how this desperate, clever woman listens to Jesus. The English translation hides something that is clear in the Greek. The Greek word that's translated dogs in our translation actually means a little dog, that is, a house dog or a pet. A dog is still a dog, but this one belongs in the house. This one is under the same roof. So in Jesus' slightly gentler terminology, the Gentiles are no longer wild dogs howling in the streets and wandering in the alleys and sniffing the garbage. They're inside the house. Jesus puts Jews and Gentiles together under the same roof, at least. She could have walked away, offended, angry, but she got it. She got it. Maybe she got it more than Jesus intended. We all know that Jesus was a master of a witty, wise retort. Let the one who is without sin cast the first stone or render to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God's what is God's. But this woman, this wise, relentless woman, is the only person I know in all the Gospels who beats Jesus at his own game, word for word. 
Yes, Lord, she says. Yes, of course, the, the, the children come first. Jews take priority. Okay. I'll be your little dog. But even the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from the table, don't they? <laughs> Martin Luther, for whom this was a favorite story, said, isn't this a masterpiece? She traps Jesus in his own words. How can he get out of this? This woman boldly engages Jesus in a game of wits, matching him word for word, saying for saying, and with dogged faith and spiced with determination, even humor, she trumps Jesus. Now, there are two basic ways that one can read or understand this strange encounter of Jesus and this woman. One is that Jesus really intended all along that he was going to help her, but he was testing her faith consciously. He was leading her step by step into a recognition of what he was all about. That's possible, but to me it doesn't really fit the plain meaning of the text very well. There's another way of seeing it, even though we hesitate to look at it this way. Through this woman's dauntless faith, Jesus learns something. He grows in understanding. He changes his mind. He crosses a boundary. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, you're thinking. Can't be Jesus learning, Jesus growing, Jesus doesn't know it all. And here, of course, we confront that deep truth that in Jesus, God became human. The creeds affirm that the eternal Son of God became a human being, a true human being, not half human, not part human, really fully human like you and like me. And that implies that like all human beings, Jesus grew. He developed the same ways that we do. And the Gospels confirm that. Luke says Jesus grew, grew in wisdom and stature. The Epistle of Hebrews puts it even more bluntly. Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered, it says. Wow. So right here, Jesus learns something. He changes his mind. He finally says, oh, woman. Great is your faith. Let it be done according to your wishes. Jesus' final response to her is not one of weakness or weariness or resignation. He isn't saying, okay, have it your way after all. No, I see it as a smiling affirmation. Wow, you got me. He seems astonished by her persistent, implacable, powerful faith. And it opens up a stream of healing to her demon-possessed daughter. Even if it ignores the proper channels, the precise timing that Jesus has in mind. The boundary of Jesus' grand historical time scheme takes a back seat before this woman's simple faith in the mercy of Jesus. So, 
What can we make from this? What can we take away from this strange story? Just a couple of things. First of all, this, sto this story challenges us, I think, in two ways. First, the first comes when we look at Jesus. When we look at Jesus as he struggles with boundaries, because that's what's happening. As Jesus' followers, we ask ourselves, where do we draw the lines? What are our boundaries? Where do we erect fences? What's our sense of timing? We are surrounded by Canaanites, folks. Even in Grand Rapids, there are people that we see as being beyond the boundaries. Are you ready to hear those excluded voices? Are you willing to recognize those cries for justice, for mercy, for simple recognition? You may not agree with the way they live. You may be scared. You may feel out of your element. But then remember this story. With Jesus as our guide, we are called to take the risk of crossing the comfortable boundaries of our lives because that's where we're going to learn and grow. The early church learned the same lesson. They struggled with the same boundary that Jesus did here. And it took a while for them to finally get the point. As long as we stay behind our tiny boundaries, we may never hear the cries for mercy that are all around us. We may never hear the real stories of real people that might blow away our fences, our rock well, our rock, our well-fortified lives off kilter. Reflecting on this story, Barbara Brown Taylor says we need to let go, step out, look a Canaanite in the eye, knock on a strange door, ask an outsider what life is like, trespass an old boundary. The second challenge of this story comes when we focus on the woman. However we read the story, what stands out about this woman is her tremendous faith that even Jesus was amazed by it. And what made her faith so great? Great faith hangs in there. It's persistent, it's humble, it's daring. It's a trust in the mercy of God that's the most powerful force in the world. That's this woman's, that this that's why this woman's prayer persists in the church throughout the ages. Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Even when it seems impossible, even when the obstacles are insurmountable, even when you feel like an outsider, great faith in God's mercy changes everything. It hangs on through dead silence through daunting theological proclamations, even through seeming insults and exclusions. So we learn from the Canaanite woman, faith prevails over all obstacles. For there is one thing Jesus cannot refuse, and that is steadfast faith in his goodness and grace. As the Apostle John says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world.
the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's pray together. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Have mercy on us in our bumbling faith, our cramped vision, our failure to have the same mercy toward others as you have so freely offered to us. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. You who have crossed the infinite boundary of heaven and earth, open our hearts to hear the cries for mercy beyond the boundaries that we build and maintain. Kyrie eleison, Lord, have mercy. Now we come to your table, beggars, empty-handed, broken-hearted, hungry for your mercy. Feed us not with the dog's crumbs, but with yourself, so we may become your brothers and sisters at the family table. We are unworthy to receive you, but only say the word, and we shall be healed. Amen.